Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan and I'm joined as usual by Benjamin Red. And we have another very special guest today, Mr. Sergio Khalil. Um, Sergio, tell us about you. Thank you so much for having me. I, you know, the first time I'm on the other side of, uh, of the speaker because I'm a regular uh, listener to your fascinating program. I'm very happy to be here. We're really glad to hear that. Thank you. Uh, I, I am here in Lebanon for a special reason. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the director of the Latin American Center for Lebanese Studies, which is based in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And uh, I'm here because we are every year we do a symposium on, on subjects about Lebanon. We have done one in Costa Rica, in Mexico, in Colombia, in Argentina, and uh, Uruguay. And, and this year uh, we happen to be doing it in Lebanon for the first time. And it coincides with the visit of 200 kids from uh, all over Latin America and Europe and the U.S. and Australia who are visiting Lebanon. And I, it's a good occasion for us to be uh, talking about the challenges of, and opportunities that Lebanon has in the, in the present and in the future. So that was the, the, the subject of a meeting we had yesterday in which uh, you, uh, uh, Nizar, participated and it was very interesting. And uh, that's why I'm here in Lebanon. And and it's super. Uh, we're super glad to have you here because today's topic of what we're going to be discussing uh, later on is the diaspora, and specifically, you know, what is the diaspora and the relationship between Lebanon and its diaspora. Uh, but first, of course, we have to get to the news. This week, a lot of things happened. Uh, last week, if you remember, we were saying farewell to the budget. Uh, it's all done, halas. Uh, but uh, not quite, not quite, because President Aoun is refusing to sign the budget. And, and before I get into this, I just want to say something straight off the bat, because there's a lot of disinformation out there. A law does not need the president's signature to go into effect. In fact, like th- this was one of the main points of the Ta'af Accord, uh, that the president can no longer block legislation. So you may see it, you may read it that that says, oh, like this, the law needs uh, our own signature to uh, to be implemented. No, it does not. That is false. That is, and, and it almost seems like it, sometimes it seems like it's an active campaign of disinformation. That is not true. That being said, this article, he's refusing to sign over an article that's in the budget that basically says that all these people who pass civil service uh, board exams, they're all just going to be hired because they've been waiting, a lot of them, for like years for this to happen. And and this is sort of like a really big deal because their employment has been held up for a very long time, largely because of sectarian considerations, because so many of them, so many more Muslims apply than Christians. And so like you, you've got this ratio that's off that really shouldn't matter, according to Toph. It does not matter. It You know, the sectarian breakdown only matters at the highest levels. But no, it, they've been blocked even at these low levels, like people just entering their civil service career uh, over this. Uh, and, and this is a big deal, especially for FPM and for Gibran Basile in particular, who, who says like, oh, well, there aren't enough Christians here. So uh, so this has been really politicized. And, and so there's there's a reason that Aoun is refusing to sign it. it it's because something that uh, his party has been very much against for a long time. Now, and I, I, I want to say something about this. I mean, this the, the legitimacy that Jibran Basile has as the new strong person in the state who is bringing Christian into the state jobs is really, really a major part of his credibility now. And when he goes into the villages and the towns in Lebanon, he says the Christians are back going back to the state. No one is, is going to be um, controlling us anymore. And this is when he hit at Nabih Birri earlier when we had all of this big thing between FPM and Amal. It's because he was saying 
we won't allow these Muslim politicians to control who comes in the state anymore. We are we are employing our Christian people in the in the state institutions. So this is a really big thing politically in in FPM's like long term strategy of political support. Right, right. And speaking of Nabi Berri, so this actually goes straight to the heart of how Nabi Berri conducts parliament and sort of the dysfunctional manner in which parliament operates and 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 the way that uh, Berri presides over things. So there. Uh, on this on, on this article, right, so in the budget, Parliament has to vote on every single article. It's a special thing. You go through every single article, they debate it, they pass it. Well, there was a big debate on this article, but it was really unclear what, if any, changes were made to the article. Even MPs themselves were unclear, uh, you know, what got passed. Nabibiri said, you know, Sudok, like it, it passes, but people didn't really know what it was that passed until they saw the final text, right? And, and so it really just sort of goes to this sort of speaker's prerogative of deciding what, and, 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 and if you have a problem with what the speaker says passes, then you'd better raise the point right there, like while it's being passed. Otherwise, you may get into a situation like this where the law has been printed up. There's something that you don't think that you agreed to as an MP that's in the law, and it's on the president's desk for a signature. All that being said, I want to go back to this point of like, Aoun's signature is immaterial here. Well, that's largely the case. According to the Constitution, Aoun basically has a 30-day window, like a one month, where he can send it back to the parliament for reconsideration or not do anything. But basically, after that one month expires, regardless of whether he signs it or not, it goes into effect. It becomes law. It goes into effect. If he sends it back to parliament and they decide not to do anything with it, then it doesn't matter. It still goes into effect. It's a law. So it, the way things could possibly play out here uh, is it, it, exactly that. Like after, you know, 30 days, after one month, this could just become a law or, you know, parliament, b because there was this big question over, well, what exactly passed? It's theoretically possible that they could, you know, on could send it back and they could, you know, reopen debate on it and pass something that everybody agrees on. Uh, alternatively, there could be a challenge at the Constitutional Council uh, for this. This is, this is how they've delayed implementation of laws in the past. Or probably the most likely solution, I, I think, is, is that Berri and Aoun could just sort of like reach a quiet behind the scenes deal, uh, call the text a misprint, uh, and just sort of like tweak it to both of their likings and said, oh, well, this is what was passed. We won't, you know, challenge this or anything. And then just let it all be. Nabi Berri will sign again. Saad Hariri will sign again. And Aoun will sign. And, and then it'll be able to go into effect. But yeah, this this is just another one of those things that you you we really didn't think that there would be any sort of problem uh, with this. We thought, oh, 2019 budget, it's passed, it's done. Finally, you know, the politicians got something done uh, because the economy is not doing great right now. And and then they they we find out they can't really even do this right when you know everybody is saying we've got a whole lot bigger problems, bigger fish to fry, bigger problems to deal with. Uh, but here we are squabbling over like these arcane, like some part of some article that might have gotten changed. And and, and speaking of governmental incompetence, uh, the cabinet is still frozen. Uh, as of Monday, it has been 27 days since that aborted cabinet meeting uh, on July 2nd. This all stems from the Moon incident. And like we still see no way out right now. Uh, Jumblat this past week proposed sending both the Moon case and if you remember like the, the Shwefet incident uh, from a year ago where, uh, where a PSP uh, partisan was killed, send them both to the Judicial Council. Uh, Talal Erslan, uh, the leader of the Lebanese Democratic Party, said no. I don't want to do that. That's that other cases in the past. 
I am insisting on my right to send this, uh, uh, the Kabr Shumun incident, to the Judicial Council. But let's be clear here, Jumlat didn't really want any of them to be sent to the Judicial Council. He's just saying to the Talal al-Islam, you can't have these double standards because the person who is suspected allegedly to have committed the murder and uh, to the, the, the killing of uh, Ala Abu Faraj and Shuaifat in 2018 was allegedly very close to Irslan, like part of his close uh, entourage. And Irslan was accused of smuggling him to Syria and, uh, you know, keeping him away away from the judicial system. So Jumblat is saying, if you want to apply it now, let's apply it for last year's and this incident as well. So he's basically saying, stop, because um, if you go this far, I'm going to go this far too, and then no one will be happy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and just to like pull back really quickly, I, I just want to say that I'm I'm still confused about one thing, and I, I haven't gotten an answer that's super convincing on this. Basically, the cabinet split 15 to 15, whether to send this on to the Judicial Council or not. So if cabinet were to meet, then Jumblat's side, Hariri's side, w- would win. It, like, it wouldn't advance to the Judicial Council. And so I, I really do question, you know, why isn't Hariri just calling a session of cabinet his side's going to win unless something else is going on here because the fpm has said uh, even even though you know they were the ones who sort of you know did that flex at the july 2nd meeting and prevented cabinet from meeting they they said no if if hurry calls a meeting we will attend uh to the other said if you call a meeting you know uh, my guy will go and you know i just want the judicial council vote to be voted on and it doesn't matter you know like up or down let's just have a vote so I don't understand why Hariri just doesn't do this. And I've, I've heard, an expl- you know, some explanations that like things could backfire. Maybe there could be a big fight. Maybe there could be other things that come out uh, that sort of like inflame tensions and theoretically even like the cabinet could collapse or something like that. But I don't nobody's explained what like what ex- how exactly this would happen. And it doesn't like w- without that piece of information, it seems kind of like a. A questionable explanation for why he's not calling a meeting. But to me, it's a bit. It could be simpler. It could be that political parties don't want to have to make a position on this. You know, like if Hezbollah doesn't yeah. want to vote on this. I mean, for sure, Nabih Birri would never allow his ministers to vote for for this decision because I mean he has a close relationship with Jumblat and this would end it. I mean, but this would be a big big blow to it. Maybe Hezbollah is also reserved about this. Maybe Hariri doesn't want to be involved. So. They're just trying to prevent the vote, I think. Uh, this is my simple, very simple, maybe naive explanation. It's just that they don't want to put themselves in a situation where they have to take a position on such a divisive issue. And meanwhile, it's been a month without any cabinet work, basically. Uh, very very quickly, Danny Denon, the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, gave remarks uh, uh, this week there. And he, he said that Israel had found that Iran and the Quds Force uh, from Iran have begun to advance the exploitation of the civilian maritime channels and specifically the port of Beirut. The, he said, the port of Beirut is now the port of Hezbollah. Uh, and, and, and also said, made, made other allegations, unsubstantiated, of course, that like the, the, the Quds Force was uh, sending dual-use items into Lebanon to advance Hezbollah's rocket and missile capabilities. So this has basically been, been seen as the Israelis giving themselves more leeway uh, when and if there is a war in the future uh, mm-hmm. to to bomb civilian infrastructure, to bomb specifically the port of Beirut. Because if they do, then they can say, well, we warned you back in the day that Hezbollah was using this, blah, blah, blah. The the Lebanese ambassador saw right through this, of course, uh, Amal Mudalali. And she basically said, 
you know, if you're if you're using this to prepare the ground for a, an attack on civilian infrastructure, you know, like th- this council should just n- totally disregard what you're saying. And I think she was spot on on that. Also in the news, we had Palestinians protesting for the second week this past week. On, on Friday, there was, a, if you uh, have been on social media, I think at all, you've probably seen this, uh, this, uh, you know, uh, Friday of anger, these mass protests in in uh, the camps across Lebanon after Friday prayers. Um, and, and this goes back to what we uh, our, our topic last week, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, we explained in depth last week, we don't have to get into the details, but what we can say is that the mobilization we're seeing in Palestinian camps today for socioeconomic rights is something we have not seen for a really long time. It's something it maybe unprecedented. We're seeing huge mobilization not for typically political reasons, you know, things like uh, solidarity with what's happening in Palestine or um, at, against the decision of Trump or whatever. We're seeing a movement for socioeconomic rights, and this is something re- remarkable and really encouraging. Uh, uh, this Friday was called the Friday of Anger because this is the kind of the peak of the mobilization. So there were mass protests against uh, after the Friday prayers. But also on Monday, there's a there's a protest or a sit-in planned by Lebanese groups, Lebanese activists in front of the labor ministry demanding uh, a change of policy and a change of attitude towards Palestinian workers and refugees in general. Uh, And it's kind of the first kind of action to show solidarity with the movement happening in the camps. So that's also interesting to me. And and so we can expect this to be a continuing story. Uh, This will certainly uh, continue this week. One other thing that we absolutely have to talk about before we get to the main topic this week, everybody was talking about this, the concert by uh, the Lebanese band uh, Mashrou Leila. The band was scheduled to perform at the Biblos International Festival this year on uh, on August 9th. Um, uh, this is, I think, the second or third time that, yeah. they, uh, that they would be performing. But something happened. <laughs> and suddenly this campaign started up online against the group basically saying that uh, the the band was anti-religious and uh, was, I, I don't know, offending religion in a lot of ways. Uh, of course, the fact that their lead singer is openly gay uh, is, is let, let's be honest, like that's really what's behind all of this. Yeah. But, but yeah, this, this just absolutely captured the attention of, uh, of a lot of people in the country. Yeah, this suddenly became the number one priority in... in uh in Lebanese public discourse and uh, how it was fueled is also, you know, disturbing, you know, a mix of uh, some people from the FPM surrounding, specifically one person who is known for making very inflammatory statements about, you know, uh, like inciting uh, sectarian uh, sectarian conflict. Uh, he had a role in, in Shufan Alay when, do, when we were doing the elections there, you know, fueling tensions against Jumblat. And now he suddenly became like uh, saw uh, Mashrur Leila as uh, as a threat to Christianity etc but also religious institutions went too far with this one I mean it was not only like a spontaneous thing it seems to be like a manufactured campaign and religious institutions are calling for the cancellation of the concert which is really like uh, a bit more than you I mean there is some sense of censorship that comes from you know the Catholic media center uh, on things that are published usually but this time it's like a big campaign and there are people who are threatening you know violence against the band some people said anyone who insults Christianity in any way should be killed and others and 
just people in general endorsing this wave is, has been something very scary. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, um, when there are public and credible threats of violence against people, uh, against a band like this, uh, Lebanon's public prosecution swings into action and calls the band in for questioning. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, uh, Mount Lebanon's top prosecutor, Radaon, called some of the band, uh, the, I guess the band members who were, who were present in the country in for questioning over there, I, I guess, I guess based on uh, complaints from a Philippe Saif, Kata'abi activist, and and I guess from the church, and questioned them and said, so I guess Hamid Sinno actually had to take down an article that he had shared on his private Facebook that had a picture inside of the article that was offensive to some people, something about like a Virgin Mary, but with the face of Madonna. So like sort of three degrees of separation from anything real. Uh, he, he, had to, he had to take that down. Also, the band apparently has taken down at least one of their songs from um, some of the streaming services online. And also the band met, or the, uh, some members of the band met with religious representatives, and I think some politicians were there, uh, local officials. And what came out after this meeting w was basically all one-sided, right? We don't know what the band is saying. We know what other people are saying. And what got reported from other people is that the band will do some really extreme measures, you know, like never play the offensive songs who supposedly their offensive lines and some of their songs never play these songs again ever in any of their concerts which is something that no band would ever agree to i think also the band was supposed to come out and have a public press conference where they publicly apologized so i guess like sort of like a some sort of right of public shaming and so all of this is supposed to happen we're waiting for a press conference uh we don't know like we don't we don't have the band side of the story on this uh, and we don't know what they're going to do. We don't know if they're going to pull out of the uh, out of the festival or if they're going to go through with this like public humiliation just so that they're allowed to play a partial set at the Biblos International Festival. We're, we're all just waiting right now uh, for for a little bit more clarity on this. And although we saw we saw a lot of solidarity from, you know, within the progressive circles in Lebanon and the Mashrua Leila fans in Lebanon and abroad. It's still very, very disappointing how the politicians and public figures in Lebanon are dealing with it. Some of them, of course, not all, who have not defended, have not expressed solidarity with the band and are trying to kind of appease to... Um... Yeah, you would, you would think that the uh, two Maronite uh, MPs from Jbel, uh, Simon Abidramia of the FPM and Ziad Hawat, Mr. Jbel himself, who uh, is independent but caucuses with the Lebanese forces, you, you would think that they would have something to say. They have been noticeably quiet on, on this front. Just zero, I, I guess, political courage uh, I, on this issue. I just wanted to make a comment related to this. Yesterday, when Nizar and I were participating in at LAU Biblos campus on this program for the diaspora, one of the questions from the diaspora was precisely on, on the concert. And it was very interesting how the diaspora, since we are talking about it today, how the diaspora takes this subject, and uh, they tended to complain about the the tenacity in which some some uh, establishment figures have been kind of attacking this band. So I would say that for what we felt yesterday, with 200 kids coming from all over the world being present in Lebanon, I think the first question they made was about this. Yeah, and to me, I, I think that diaspora is about to get a little bit bigger because uh, you know looking at this. 
we we see especially from a lot of the the comments on online attacking the band and everything that yeah this is like really about anti-gay sentiment and so i you know there's just a thousand young gay kids in the country who are watching this and and especially if the band folds like they're going to see no alternative than to get the fuck out of this place all right so on that note <laughs> let, let, let let's talk about uh people leaving the, the country people leaving the country that's <laughs> that's uh that's that's our topic today no uh we we're so happy to have you sergio because yeah uh, the, the diaspora plays just such a huge role in, in the political discourse here and 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 in the economy as well right like uh, there are well we, nobody knows exactly how many people there are in the diaspora right but there's millions there's more diaspora lebanese than there are lebanese at very least right yes well the diaspora is a very sentimental has a very sentimental relationship with Lebanon and on bo- both ways it goes both ways so the diaspora sees Lebanon in a very sentimental way and and, and Lebanon treats the diaspora also as a, not only as a sentimental uh, uh, subject but also it's 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 a, it's a survival kind of uh, thing for the diaspora and, and when you talk about numbers you know I'm not going to talk necessarily today about the ones who are leaving we can discuss that a little bit later together but I can I can talk about the ones who already left and and many years ago and uh, the, you know the, about the numbers is very complicated to calculate it there has never been a census done on that similar to what has happened internally in Lebanon so there's no census so nobody really knows what are the numbers of the diaspora it's always calculations it's always estimations and they range uh, widely from you know i've seen numbers from 6 million to 15 million so and, and how uh, but, do you count it if somebody's like a grandkid with you know like two lebanese grandparents one lebanese grandparent but three non-lebanese like well well, well the, what, what the government the lebanese government tends to do and this is not this government every government since you know the lebanon was founded they tend to count anybody anybody who has one drop of lebanese blood so anybody who has you know, one grandparent of Lebanese origin is already Lebanese, even if the other uh, the f- three grandparents were German or Chinese or whatever they were, and they emigrated. So this is one way of doing it. So we are including into our numbers, the Lebanese numbers, people who not necessarily we know are committed or even linked to Lebanon in many ways. So this is the first issue. The second issue is, you know, and, and this is for me is very important issue. If we are counting just the... You know, and this is related to the, the, the this idea of the Lebanese nationality that the government is pushing. So are we counting just the male Lebanese who left? Because this, the women, according to the Lebanese law, don't have the right to give citizenship to the children. That, that would mean that if their government is saying we have 10 million Lebanese, are the women included in that 10 million? Or we're just talking about the 5 million who are male and their descendants so this is a very critical issue and then we can discuss a little bit later about it but what are we counting are we counting the lebanese diaspora for one thing in a way and for another thing in in, for different purposes this is very important yeah and one thing also that is common is to kind of talk about the diaspora as a as one big homogeneous thing you know like uh, the diaspora without going into the nuance of what that exists and before we started recording you were expressing you know how, how how controversial that is so can you elaborate on that oh the diaspora is very diverse it's diverse in in time and that's diverse in composition so so when you start to talk about the diaspora and geographically also uh, they have different implications for lebanon so first of all let's start uh, you know when did these people leave 
Some people left at the, the, the end of the 19th century, and they mostly left for economic reasons. You know, they left not because of the civil war in the mountains. They left after the civil, after the civil war and 10 to 15 years after. So it was not a really a political reason for which most people, or religious even, reason for which people left. People left for economic reasons, and that seems to be the prevailing reason, except few instances like during the Civil War and, and the chaotic situation of Lebanon, but that seems to be the underlying reason for which Lebanese are leaving, and we can even talk about it, what's happening today. So when you look at the diaspora, you cannot uh, put them in the same bag, you know, somebody who is the great-grandchildren of Lebanese, who is a member of the Lebanese diaspora, and is treated as such by the Lebanese government, as somebody who left Lebanon and worked in the Gulf, and he comes back, you know, every month, and he sends all his money here, he's by his house, or somebody in Africa who sent his kids to school in the summer, and, and they, had, they are really completely involved with the Lebanese way of life, and the Lebanese political life, and social life, or economic life, and somebody whose great-grandfather emigrated to Brazil, or to Mexico, or to Argentina, and his only connection is to come to Lebanon maybe once every two years, three years, spend the summer here, have fun, eat tabule, you know, listen to tabke, and go back to their countries, and the life goes on. So it's a very different and diverse diaspora. Yeah, and, and while you say that people didn't leave, you know, primarily for religious reasons, that sort of sectarianism did sort of like play into previous waves of immigration and into like the diaspora communities, right? So, you know, back under the Ottoman Empire, for instance, Christians could leave much more easily than Muslims, right? And so when we had the, the first waves of, of Lebanese immigration, a lot of them were just Christian by, by nature, right? Well, it has to do with also with the economics of Lebanon at the time. You know, the mountain is the one that suffered the most due mostly to the silk crisis. You know, the silk industry who has been thriving in Lebanon for many years, at least after, especially after the 1840s, it grew to a tremendous level of, of development until uh, 1870, 1890. And this, when, when, the, when the Suez Canal was open, Chinese silk began, started competing with the Lebanese silk, and the French started to import more silk from China than from Lebanon. So they, they kind of forgot their prior protected people, <laughs> and they just uh, dealt the new deal with the Chinese. And this is when the mountains start suffering most, and this is when you have a big, big, big emigration of up to one-third of the people from the mountain, mostly Maronites. And, and you, that didn't happen in the coast because the coast did not depend so much on the silk industry. Although it was complementary, the ports and the merchants from Tripoli and from uh, Saida and Beirut, they were involved in the business, but they always were able to, to uh, replace somehow the trading because they had the trading capacity, which in the mountain was solely connected to, the, to that industry. So that's why you have a bigger uh, Christian immigration from one point. And then another aspect is important that you know, the people fighting in, in, during the war, the First World War for the Ottomans were mostly Muslims. So they did not want the Muslims to leave. So they, they kind of, uh, they, they had more difficulties because if you were a Muslim, you needed a special permit to go uh, outside to take a boat. And normally you would have to go into an Ottoman port, like, you know, maybe Port Said or maybe uh, Smyrna or maybe Istanbul, but you wouldn't be able as, as, as easily to go to Marseille or to uh, Genova, which is where, where the Christians were emigrating as a starting point for later going to America without really knowing where they were going. You know, when they were going to America, for them, America was one big thing and they didn't know what it was. 
America in some in somehow it meant immigration. It's so true. I mean, this is what I hear from my grandfather's generation that everyone was just going to America in general. Ended up in Argentina or Canada or or Michigan. It doesn't really. Uh, it wasn't really intentional uh, in some cases. Uh, but some of them also came back. They bought land. They built big houses. They kind of achieved social mobility by going there for a few years and coming back. And most obviously stayed. And this is how we have big diaspora communities. No, but you know, Nizar, is important what you're saying. Because if you see at the beginning of the of the 20th century, the development of the villages in Lebanon in the mountain, when you see the when you start seeing the houses with the red roofs, these were the houses of the immigrants. So True. their immigrants were the richest people, and they were coming back with money. Either they were coming back because there it, it always was somebody who left, maybe one member or two members, but there was always somebody who stayed here taking care of their properties. Yeah. So. And, and the people who emigrated brought back a lot of money, many of them, and many emigrated back. This, there's not so much, this study is not uh, really uh, understood very well. We know that a lot of Lebanese came back, but there's a lot of studies on the people who emigrated, very few studies on the people who came back. And this, in a way, were the makers of the new Lebanon because mm-hmm. they were bringing a lot of uh, profits from the business they had there or they were sending money. And this is when you start to see development of the villages. And normally, if you go to the villages, even today, the richest uh, houses are the, the houses that belong to the immigrants. True, true. And I can say from uh, from our village specifically, uh, the example of my grandfather who went to Argentina and came back after a few years, built a house in a completely different area of the village where now is the main road that connects the Bekaa to Shouf. And uh, he connected water to his house. He had the bathroom inside the house, first one in the village. He had the telephone in the house, first time in the village, etc. So these things were like, this is how... And then he bought, obviously, land and all of this thing. But this is how, like... He introduced a new concept, which is this um, kind of modern uh, modern house uh, to, to, to the village, while most of the village was living in the valley near the water with uh, thatched roofs and etc. So uh, I, I, I really see your, what you're saying in, in our experience in my village as well. But more important than just bringing economic contribution, I think also they brought back a lot of new ideas that permeated into Lebanon. Because they saw in those countries that religion was not an issue. So the people who emigrated back to Lebanon brought some fresh ideas also that eventually influenced somehow. And also they brought the idea of, you know, in a way fostering more immigration because the people who were living here were poorer and they saw that people who left Lebanon became rich and they came back with a lot of money. Why don't we do that too? So in a way that was reflected in an increased rate of emigration to those countries. Unfortunately, Uh, for Lebanon and you know they became uh, successful in the diaspora so the diaspora became bigger and bigger and the Lebanese uh, system became smaller in that sense that's very interesting Um, and then we had many different waves as well um, of immigration from Lebanon one of them after uh, World War II specifically in the 60s and the oil boom in Gulf countries a lot of Lebanese people got jobs in the 60s and the 70s and built uh, started you know, their families in the Gulf. Uh, this is something very common as well. And the Arab-Israeli war in 1967 had its impact. But maybe the biggest and most dramatic wave of immigration was during civil war, uh, where uh, nearly one million people left, around 40% of the population. And as you were telling me, Sergio, before we started recording, there was like the, the civil war had impact and maybe the diaspora, the Lebanese diaspora abroad, which is usually portrayed as only like positive in terms of economic contribution, maybe had a negative role in that sense. Well, th- there is also, you know, the political export because the diaspora that left during the war, they had political ideas. So we, we had effects, you know, the, 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 you, we have to understand also the effects of the Lebanese politics in the diaspora. And what happened is during the war, 
uh, we had, uh, in terms of political uh, thinking, we had several diasporas, and they were they were along the, the, the same lines uh, that as the people fighting the war here. So you had people who were supporting, let's say, the Lebanese Front at the beginning, the political uh, parties, and then you know, people uh, supporting the national movement. And mm-hmm. this we felt it directly in, in, in our countries because we saw the fight. Of course, it was not a military fight, but it was an ideological fight. And many cases, it divided our communities. So during the war, you were not only divided in Lebanon, we were divided in the diaspora. And even institutions like the World Lebanese Union, that used to be one organization, it became you know, four different groups supported you know different parties and different ideas and this is the truth today today the lebanese world cultural union which is supposed to gather all the lebanese under one umbrella it's it you know you have four different organizations they, they claim to represent the diaspora the reality is nobody can claim to represent the diaspora although you know i like some of these people are my friends and i love them very much and i work with them the problem is that nobody can claim to represent the diaspora not even from lebanon the diaspora doesn't have a representative. The diaspora is is a free movement of people, and they think differently, and they act according to their own beliefs, and uh, it's not necessarily sectarian. You know, the diaspora uh, d- does not buy this sectarian, in general, this sectarian idea, because this is a very Lebanese thing. And we're talking about diaspora, some people who left many years ago, and they became Brazilians, they became Mexicans, they became Americans. So when you talk to an American, and you talk about with a Brazilian, you talk with a, with these people that left a long time ago about sectarianism, it's, a, it's an alien concept to them. And they don't yeah. take it very well in many, in many cases. I mean, I, I see both things. I see, I see maybe in some cases people are alienated from sectarianism. In some cases, when uh, they are first, especially when they are first or second generation uh, conservative families, they become even more sometimes sectarian or conservative abroad because they don't see the current situation. They don't. They they see it more of like uh, part of their patriotism. But the the interesting thing is that the the integration like the extent of integration goes beyond what we think about like if we're counting everyone who is uh, who has Lebanese origins in Brazil for example to be Lebanese to be part of diaspora then we are counting plenty of ministers and MPs and we were talking just talking about this before the episode right there is there was 100 like one-fourth of the Congress in Brazil who was from Lebanese origins one half of the cabinet of Dilma Rousseff before she was uh, overthrown I mean, this is a huge community of capitalists and businessmen and and politicians, and they're not at all all engaged in a way, in one way or another, uh, in Lebanon. So the connections also are very different, and uh, how they interact with the country is uh, is in, uh, when it exists is also depend a lot on on the situation in every country. But the, primarily, I think the Lebanese who left, they became citizens of their own country and parts, uh, you know, they became an integral part of the communities in their own country. And the Lebanese were very successful. You know, they started at sometime at, as a peddler or a small merchant and they grew and they became, uh, you know, wholesalers and then became industrialists. You have to realize that people sometimes don't know that the Lebanese, in many cases, were the first ones to bring credit to, to some of these countries because they were... They were growing their businesses and they brought people. They invited their cousins and their friends from their villages in Lebanon. So it's very common that if you go to a town in Mexico, all the Lebanese communities from the same town. Why? Because when they, as they were growing their business, they started bringing from Lebanon their friends and their family, and they all established themselves in the same villages. So they are all related. They're all from the same region in Lebanon sometimes. And they were giving credit to each other. So the guy who had more money was giving credit to a newcomer 
and this guy was going with this credit to expand his business, sometimes in another town because they already, you know, uh, crowded the market. They were very smart people and, and, and they grew. And then the Lebanese became very powerful economically and with economic power comes political power. And this mm -hmm. is when you see some Lebanese people becoming politicians. And, you know, in Latin America, you had several presidents of Lebanese origin. You, you mentioned Dilma Rousseff and her cabinet, but the for, after her, the president was Lebanese. I just try not to mention him because I okay, despise him. It's, it's okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making a judgment on, on, you know, the president of Colombia, Turbay, was a Lebanese. Mm -hmm. you, the prime minister of, of, of Jamaica was Lebanese. And, and you know, we had, we had in Ecuador, they had like four Lebanese presidents. Yeah. Uh, the Dominican Republic had a Lebanese president. Regardless, and this is an important point what you made, you know, they don't all agree in the political view. They don't, don't think that all the Lebanese have one political view. They are as diverse as the political views there are in the world. Exactly. And, and exactly. even towards Lebanon, the Lebanese diaspora doesn't think in one single, as a one single unit. You have so many diverse ideas, so many people that, you know, maybe agree with one political party or with one, you know, family in Lebanon or person, but in the majority of the Lebanese have their own, uh, their own position. And I would tell you that a, a very large number of Lebanese immigrants are completely independent. And be, I think this relates to like the, the politics of it as well, which we'll talk about in a minute. But before that, it's important to look at how this uh, the, the diaspora plays into the economic, uh, the Lebanese economic model, especially after the civil war, with the transformation of the Lebanese economy away from productive sectors and more into sectors that are based on rent. And there are economic studies that show how remittances from, uh, from uh, immigrants are such a huge part of the Lebanese economy, like at some point uh, they reached higher than any other country in the world in terms of percentage of GDP. And they became a justification for the Lebanese economy not to be a productive economy that is exporting products uh, in order to receive money. So this, this is kind of free money. We're uh, exporting people, but uh, receiving money uh, in return. So uh, it plays into this uh, rentier economic system that is really controversial and everyone wants to, everyone wants to to change it at the same time these remittances are obviously not taxed because we want to keep the incentives happening and they are not regulated in any way by the state they are completely private which means that they are not invested or channeled into specific sectors that could potentially like uh, be invested in productive sectors etc but also on the other hand it's a way in which the state is kind of outsourcing its uh, welfare responsibilities because what you see is families that are, for example, parents that are going into retirement uh, and without a retirement plan, obviously, without considerable savings. And this retire the retirement plan is actually just their son or daughter in the Gulf sending them money every month. So remittances are more than just uh, occasional. They are part now of how welfare is, is, is happening in Lebanon. Instead of the state having its own systems, it's being completely private, which means it's, it's also more volatile. It's also less sustainable and less systematic. And it only reaches the families where, they, where there are children who are educated and able to travel abroad and make enough money to send back considerable amounts of money home. Well, I, I think it's important here to just note that this is different depending on which diaspora community you're talking about, right? Right. We discussed that the diaspora is not uniform, but also the connection to Lebanon is not uniform. So, for instance, somebody who emigrated at the, at the end of 19th century or the beginning of the 20th, now the diaspora is their grandchildren or great-grandchildren, and their connection to Lebanon is not the same as somebody who emigrated during the war. And, 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 and somehow this is connected geographically because, you know, the, the, the older diaspora went to the Americas mostly, talking about the Americas being the U.S., uh, Mexico, Argentina, Venezuela, 
Brazil. This is the oldest diaspora, and this is the weakest economic link, in a way, mm-hmm. to Lebanon. But you have the diaspora that went to Africa, mostly in the 70s and 80s, and also to the Gulf. But this diaspora, is, they are connected in different ways, because the people who are in Latin America, for instance, or in the U.S., they come to Lebanon every two years, three years, whatever. They come and they spend money in Lebanon, and they bring it in their pockets. And they, that, goes, that trickles down to the real economy of Lebanon, because they mm-hmm. buy things, they go to hotels, they go to restaurants, they bring gifts to their families. And in many cases, this is a economic gift. So you have this money, which is not on any radar. It goes directly into the economy of Lebanon or into the families without being seen. But this is, we cannot account for this money. It's impossible to calculate what it is. Then you have another segment that brings, like you said, the remittances, the people working in the Gulf or people who are working and living in Africa, but they send their kids to schools in Lebanon. They spend their summers in Lebanon and they do all the investments in Lebanon. Somebody from Brazil, somebody from the US, they not necessarily do all the investment in Lebanon. But then again, you have another part, which is not, I don't, I don't agree with you that all the money that comes into Lebanon goes into uh, uh, funneling the retirement of the families. It's true in many cases, but also the diaspora contributes to the banking system. You know, there is a lot of money from Lebanese uh, descendants or Lebanese people abroad who are uh, sitting in the Lebanese banks. And, you know, you know how this plays in order to finance the spending of the Lebanese government. Uh, But these are sophisticated investors. They just don't put their money in Lebanon and say, we don't care, we love Lebanon. These are people who know, who understand economics, who understand what's going on with with the loans to the central bank who yeah. are watching very keenly of what's happening. And and this is a signal that we should really take into account when you discuss the economy of Lebanon because the diaspora is not you know, a, a benefactor that just sends money to Lebanon for no reason. The other segment that we didn't discuss and is important is real estate. There is a great part of real estate in Lebanon who's been supported by the investment of the diaspora. And there's a lot of people also who invest money, in, invested money here when if, either because they returned Many people returned. Uh, now you have a lot of Venezuelans because they, uh, all of a sudden, you know, Lebanon was a disaster. But when you compare it to Venezuela, Lebanon is, is a heaven. Mm-hmm. So they are coming back. There's a lot of return uh, Venezuelans coming to Lebanon and they bring money and mm-hmm. they're investing in this country. So there is some people, established companies, some people made shopping centers. I know quite a few people from Latin America who made big investments in Lebanon and they're, they're players at the local level. So... But to these people, you have to offer uh, real opportunities. You know, why would I choose to invest in Lebanon if Lebanon doesn't offer me certain guarantees in terms of, you know, political stability, in terms of economic stability? You know, I have to worry if I'm going to make, uh, you know, a percentage, let's say 20% on, on a profit from a company and the bank is paying me, uh, you know, maybe up to 14%, why would I work? Exactly. I'd, I'd rather and, invest and, it in the, and, in the bank. And this is exactly what I want to say. If we have a problem in the economy that the productive sectors are weak compared to the rent-based sectors such as real estate and banking and buying property, which is a lot, of, which is what a lot of money is that is coming in Lebanon from the diaspora is going into, then the government has a responsibility as the uh, as a planner to ca- channel these funds to help to and to give incentives for these people to investing their to be investing their money into the productive sectors. So this, this requires industrial policy, this requires agricultural policy, and things that we have talked about. And, and it's not just like a lack of those policies from the government. It's actually actively, the, the government is providing much more 
like attractive returns just on like debt products and and things that the the central bank is offering the banks so of course like it's it's not just that oh the policymakers forgot to make an industrial policy no they're actively working in the opposite direction exactly through the tax system through this through different kind of the, the economic policy it's they're always encouraging the same sectors to thrive and the other sectors to fail but the last maybe major thing to talk about here is basically the fact that, you know, when politicians, for example, go and do the tours, the, the, the foreign minister, Gibran Basile, is always on tours uh, for the diaspora. It's not only the money that they want, right? There's some politics as well. The, there is there's some real political game happening on the diaspora level. So how do you see that from your perspective? The Lebanese government has always been involved politically with the diaspora. You know, it started in the, in the 50s and the 60s. There used to be a, a, an organization called uh, the FIEL, Federación Interamericana de Entidades Libanesas. So it's a, it's a Lebanese Inter-American Federation of uh, united all the clubs and all the institutions. That w- some of them were founded at the beginning of the 20th century, some at the mid of the 20th century. And these were gathered under this organization. When the Lebanese government saw that the, these were potentially powerful uh, partners you know, to promote Lebanon abroad, they created what it's, what it's today called the World Lebanese Cultural Union. It was then called the World Lebanese Union. They added the word cultural just because of to avoid the political significance. So they became engaged with the community. And funny enough, the secretary general of this organization was sitting at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here in Beirut. So there was a direct link mm-hmm. and there was a direct connection. Unfortunately, I, I, as I mentioned before, they were uh, divisions during the war and the, this organization became infected by the Lebanese political divisions. Now, what the, what the Lebanese government is doing now through LDE, which I think it's a, it's a private organization, I think it started as a, as a uh, you know from the Minister of Foreign Affairs, but it evolved as a as a private institution with its own rules and regulations and with its own business plans and all that. What what I think they did in a, and and this is a great merit is they were able to reconnect with very interesting people and very successful Lebanese and they brought them back to Lebanon and and I've been very impressed. You know I participated. Uh, in three or four times of these uh, events in Lebanon and abroad, and I'm very impressed by the level of people they bring, and you know, and, and the quality of people. You know, very successful, uh, you know, doctors, uh, engineers, industrialists, uh, companies, uh, people in government, the ministers of different countries, member of Congress of different countries. So it, this is very important. But what I don't see is the continuity. You know, it's kind of like a control of their, their, uh, their. You know, the, this this is a networking. Uh, a tool that uh, nobody knows. Like you know, I, I cannot connect with others if it's not through LDE. So it's it's been like uh, you know owned by somebody who is 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 really having all the tools and all the means of connecting to each other. But we we are not connecting. And 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 uh, what I'm seeing, which is worst, and I'm worrying, is that I don't see the coming back of these people. So they come to Lebanon once every every LDE. They bring a different people. They come and they perform. They get a new prize with the name of the uh, prime minister, uh, the foreign minister, as as a as a mem- uh, you know, <laughs> memoir of the event. I participated in this, and it's the name. I have one of those. It says uh, given to you for your participation. Instead of having my name, it has the name of Gibran Basile. So it's, it's very nice to to get this, but I don't see the. Con- Continuity, and I don't see the the effect, the positive effect on Lebanon. Yeah, and, and just to be totally clear on this, the LDE, the Lebanese Diaspora Energy, it is 
highly associated with Gibran Basile. It's sort of like seen as his initiative. So like credit where credit is due on the one hand, but on the other hand as well, this is definitely a like very much a political move by somebody who clearly has political, like higher political ambitions. Well, I, I don't blame that because everything in move, everything in Lebanon is a political move. So right. it's part of the system. So the LDE is becoming part of the system, but in this guy, in this case, it's connecting with the Lebanese abroad. So, so there is a political thing, uh, the same way as this uh, this idea of, of, of getting back the Lebanese nationality, which is indirectly connected to this. So there is a big push by, by, by Lebanon to issue Lebanese nationality to uh, people abroad. And we've seen that, you know, some people eagerly connect to that because they, they feel the pride of doing this. You have to prove that your grandfather uh, can be a Lebanese. Uh, of course, your grandmother cannot because of what we said before. But but this is important because it's connecting people back to Lebanon. But it's what do we want out of these people? Do we want them to politically participate in Lebanon? If they are going to politically participate in Lebanon, what do they know about Lebanon? How can we give the right to vote to people who sometimes have no clue of what Lebanon is? Your podcast is a contribution. What we are doing at Celibal is a contribution because we are educating people. We are teaching them the history of Lebanon. We are explaining to them what Lebanon is, what Lebanon stands for as, 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 as a nation, as an idea of you know, coexistence and pluralism. And all that. But then how are they going to vote if they don't really have a clue? And where are they going to vote? Are they going to vote here in Lebanon in their villages of the great-grandfathers? Or they going to uh, have a representative for their own continent? Let's say you know you are in South America, you, you vote for a, a deputy from uh, from South America, or the deputy for Africa, or the deputy for Australia. But which is how it's supposed to work uh, in 2022 under the law? We're supposed to have like six new MPs, three Christians, three Muslims for the diaspora. So we, we would have 134 MPs in, in total instead of 128. Okay, yeah, but you are putting me in a district in which you know I'm from South America, so I'm going to have to choose choose for a candidate that somehow it has to belong to one of the, the sects. So it's a confessional. You have to play the, play the sectarian game. Yeah. You are expecting <laughs> the confessional. I don't, I don't want to call it sectarian. I think sectarian to me is when you're taking advantage of it. You can call it sectarian, actually. If you, if you are taking advantage of this, confessional is, is you know, it's a more right. polite way of putting it. But in any way, they are exporting that, which is, an, uh, is anathema to uh, somebody who was born in a free country with democracy, you know, with representation, there's one person, one representation. So uh, it doesn't really... Uh, affect that. So I'm, I'm, if, I'm a, if I'm a Druze or a Shiite from Paraguay, why would I vote for a Maronite or a, a Catholic or an Orthodox from Latin America? Why should he represent me? Or, you know, why, why if you're an Australian Muslim, why would you have to vote for, uh, you know, whatever? I and mean, if, if you're somebody living in, in the U.S. and you're a Shiite from Detroit, why would you vote for a, a Maronite candidate who you've never heard of? I mean, so we have a problem with this. And then if you do it the way that we feel it should be done, we feel in the diaspora, me and many other people, that it should be non-sectarian and it should be allocated to just whoever is you choose, then you will break the sectarian balance in parliament. And that's right. a problem. Right, right, right. And I think it's really interesting what you say. Like, I, th I think the way that people view this is very different. So in the diaspora, they have a very different view of this uh, so, sort of like this effort to reach out and re sort of like reestablish political connections between the homeland and the diaspora versus, uh, I mean, here in Lebanon, this is seen like as very much a push from the Christian side. It's very popular in Christian circles to reconnect, especially to the Christian diaspora to shore up what they see as sort of like an, an erosion of their demography. But at, at, at the same time, you know, if you if you actually look at those demographics, 
going back to, to what you said before, like the Christians, you know, a, a lot of these, especially in the Americas, you know, they have sort of the, not, not the weakest link, but, uh, you, you know, like the, the, the oldest link to the, to the homeland there, you know, they're maybe in like third generation or something like that. They maybe, like you say, they don't quite understand, you know, all of the intricacies of, of politics. Maybe they don't even speak the language, you know, uh, whereas somebody who's, you know, like living in the Gulf, is probably a lot more connected that, you know, maybe grew up in Lebanon or went to school in Lebanon, something like that. It, and, and so it's it's interesting to me that the push from here in Lebanon definitely does, like you say, confessional from like a diaspora standpoint, but from inside Lebanon, it seems very sectarian, the entire push. Well, uh, the, the important thing is, you know, I, I think in the diaspora, people have, uh, you know, the, the identities of their, polit- of their religious community, which is fine. Identity is not an issue. You can feel a Maronite, you can feel that you're a Shiite, and you can you can still be a Lebanese, and you can still be Brazilian or American or whatever. So the the point is that how do we how do we mix that into a you know a very secular population, regardless of what's your religion, educated and and grew up in a system which is basically secular? How do you put that working with? A system in which you are forcing him to uh, to pick for somebody for religious purposes. So it's very complicated. So I think, in one hand, the important thing is that you know it's good to engage the diaspora. It's good to engage them politically, but import the good things they have, not try to impose on them the the, the things that might not be so positive for the country. So I'm all for uh, you know the the, the 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 given the the citizenship. I'm all for for you know every community protecting themselves. But I think the bottom line is we want to make Lebanon bigger. We want to engage these people in the proper way and not in a more divisive way. We don't want to export the Lebanese war or the Lebanese fighting to the uh, to the diaspora. We want to, on the contrary, bring whatever the diaspora can contribute for the better of Lebanon instead. Well, I think that's a, that's a great way to end this fascinating discussion. Thank you so much, Sergio, for being with us. Yeah, seriously. Uh, the amount of information and the experience that you shared is, is really invaluable. So thank you for coming. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here, and I'm sure I'm going to be listening to this podcast and the next. Uh, and here at the Lebanese Politics Podcast, we're going to take a little summer break. Uh, so we will not be here next week. We're, we're basically, you know, taking the month of August or so. But we've got a whole lot of really exciting content planned for the year, the rest of the year once we come back. But until then, we 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 hope that everybody enjoys the month of August. I I hope to make it to the polluted beach at Ramtulbaida a few times. <laughs> uh, and 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 of course, like if something earth shattering happens, we will try to come back to you with a special episode. Uh, but other than that, uh, it's us signing off for the next few weeks. And and with that, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And I'm Sergio Khalil. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.